We are studying Jeremiah. We're in chapter 21. Uh, So open your Bibles or navigate on your tablet to Jeremiah chapter 21, verses 1 through 14 is our text. If you are watching on your, uh, or following along on your phone or tablet, you might want to turn the sound off so that we don't have to make fun of you when uh, something rings. The topic, Jeremiah is consulted as the Babylonian armies begin their final siege of Jerusalem. The title of our message, Now You Siege Me, Now You Don't. <laughs> Tavo, it wasn't that funny, really. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the morning that you've given us, the time that you've set aside for us to corporately worship you. There's just something powerful and special about lifting our voices together in a chorus of praise. Uh, When we consider, Lord, that we sound so wonderful to you because we are your children singing to you from our heart. We thank you for that opportunity, and I appreciate the worship team, Lord, leading us this morning. Now we want to pay attention to your word, and as always, Lord, though it was written uh, to 6th century Jews and about them and their situation, we believe that it's for us, 21st century Christians, to draw closer to you, to know something more about your son, Jesus Christ, to understand the wonder of your grace and love and mercy in our own lives. And so lead and guide us, Lord, as we make a few comments about it. But more uh, importantly, Lord, may the word itself have its power and effect in our lives, going forth uh, in uh, the wonder uh, of the inspiration of the scripture. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And all who agreed said, amen. The title of the article was How to Fight Monkeys. Now, you might laugh but monkey attacks are on the rise, especially in India. In 2007, the deputy mayor of New Delhi, India, fell off of his balcony. Actually, he jumped off his balcony to his death after being attacked by a band of monkeys. In June of this year, an American graduate student working as a wildlife ranger at Jane Goodall's famous animal sanctuary in South Africa was dragged for almost half a mile in a frenzied monkey attack. I know you're wondering if I'm making this up. This is real. This is an ever-present danger in our society, monkey attacks. I, for one, intend to be ready. So how do you fight monkeys? You're going to be on one of those survival shows and think, I remembered my pastor telling me these things, and it saved my life. Well, this is how you fight monkeys if you're surrounded by monkeys. You can try to appease them with food, which is why I recommend you always have a banana. (laughs) You can try to chase them off by shaking a stick at them. Just remember, they get violent if cornered. If they don't budge, you can bop them on the head. Visitors to temples in India sometimes carry sticks for just that reason. India has a huge monkey problem. They're in the cities, uh, they're a protected animal, and they're, they're going into people's houses and stealing uh, food. Children, uh, if you're not careful, monkeys are taken over. Now, if push comes to shove, primatologists will sometimes send a warning signal called the open mouth threat. This is real. Basically, you form an O with your mouth, lean toward them with your body and head, and raise your eyebrows. Huh? Scared you. 
Whatever you do, don't freak out. When you scream and wave your arms and run away, you're only going to make the monkeys even more aggressive. That should help. Now, in the 6th century BC, Jerusalem would find itself surrounded not by monkeys. It's a segue. It's not a good one, but it's a segue. They were surrounded by the brutal Babylonian armies of King Nebuchadnezzar. It was a military siege. A siege, as you know, is a blockade of a city or a fortress. Sieges involved surrounding the target and blocking the reinforcement or escape of troops or provision of supplies, typically coupled with attempts to reduce the fortifications by means of siege engines or other implements of destruction. Failing a military outcome, sieges can be decided by starvation or thirst or disease, which could afflict either the attacker or the defender. It just depended on who had the greater resources available. The longest siege, military siege on record was of a city on the island of Crete back in, I think, the 1600s. The Ottoman Turks came against this city and the siege lasted 21 years before they finally uh, succumbed. Our verses are set against another historic siege, that of Jerusalem by the Babylonian armies of King Nebuchadnezzar. They are, however, about something much more than an ancient army besieging an ancient city. They're about us, the disciples of the Lord, often being blockaded or beset or besieged as we seek to serve the Lord. And they're about what can happen to those who turn away from the Lord who need his discipline in their lives. I'll organize, uh, organize my thoughts rather around two points. Number one, when you are besieged as a disciple, your proper response is to endure Number two, when you are besieged as a discipline, your proper response is to surrender. Let's take a look at verses one and two as besieged disciples encouraged to endure. Now this chapter leaps ahead from where we were uh, to 588 BC. Why put it here out of chronological order? It's to emphasize an important spiritual truth. When we last saw Jeremiah, he had been brutally flogged for preaching the gospel in the temple. He'd been put overnight in the stocks. Although he went on preaching with boldness, he was discouraged, he was disheartened, he was despairing of life itself. The people were mocking him because his predictions of a Babylonian invasion to uh, destroy their city and burn the temple, they just weren't coming to pass. As you recall, Jeremiah preached over a period of 40 years. And so there was a lot of time there uh, for the people to mock him, and deride him and say, where is uh, this invasion that you're talking about? So we left him discouraged and disheartened and trying to quit. And then the very next thing you read that God wants you to know is that Jeremiah was right all along. And so verses one and two, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent him to Peshur, the son of Melchiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Mysiah, the priest, saying... Please inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, makes war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful works that the king may go away from us. Now, Babylon came against Judah three different times. The first time, they took captives to Babylon in 605 BC. Daniel was included in that captivity. A few years later, in 597 BC, 10,000 captives were taken, including the prophet Ezekiel. 
Our verses, as I said, are set in 588 BC. This is 18 months before the final siege in which the city and the temple would be burned to the ground. The Babylonians were forming a distant blockade but had not yet besieged the city and so Zedekiah sent to Jeremiah uh, with this uh, request. Now Zedekiah wasn't really the king. He was a governor that Nebuchadnezzar had appointed to run things. Nebuchadnezzar had come and, and dethroned the, uh, the reigning king of Judah and he set up Zedekiah in his place as a governor who should have been sympathetic to Babylon. Zedekiah, however, thought he could ally with Egypt and rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, and it was that rebellion that led to the final destruction of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar said, that's enough. I've had it with you people. I tried to be merciful in conquering you, leave you alone, but if you're going to ally with our enemies, I'm going to destroy you. One more quick note. The Pashur of these verses is a different Pashur than the chief of the temple police who had Jeremiah flogged and put in the stocks. They had different fathers. Apparently, Pashur was the common boy's name in that time. Uh, You know how names run kind of in cycles? Those of you who are with child, you think, oh, I've got this great name for my boy or girl. And then, yeah, everybody has that name right now. So I recommend Pashur uh, for boys. It was once popular. I see it coming back again. Hey, it's better than some of the names people choose. But anyway, at the end of chapter 20, Jeremiah cursed the day he was born. He was so discouraged, he tried to quit uh, being a prophet. It's when we get that famous scripture that he said there was a burning in his bones. It was when he quit speaking the word of God that it started to burn him up from the inside and he found that he had to have an outlet for it. Chapter 21 testifies that the things Jeremiah had been predicting all along had now arrived. It was real. It was true. His mockers and persecutors now sought him out as perhaps the only one who could intercede with God on their behalf. You might say that Jeremiah had been besieged long before Jerusalem ever was. For many decades, his own people had besieged him. He'd been cut off. He'd been made to suffer. He was surrounded on all sides by mockers, but he endured to the end. You and I are disciples of Jesus Christ. During your time on earth, walking with the Lord, you're going to face what could be called enemy blockades. You're gonna be beset, sometimes on all sides. You might be besieged for your entire life on the earth. There are folks who are besieged with uh, some condition, maybe a disease or a condition, and that's just your lot in life for your entire life. 2 Corinthians 4.8, we read, we are hard-pressed on every side. Paul saying, myself and the other servants of the Lord, we're hard-pressed, we're surrounded on every side, and the enemies are pressing in. He described his trials in the city of Ephesus as if he were fighting, he said, against wild beasts. Now, some of the commentators try and say that maybe he was actually thrown into an arena like, you know, the early Christians were and had to fight wild beasts. But it's clear that what he meant was that his trials were so intense, his struggles so intense, it was like fighting wild animals. 
To the Thessalonian Christians, he said that Satan had broken up the road ahead of him, hindering his progress. And so he was trying to walk with the Lord to go certain places with the gospel, and he found that the road was demolished. The bridges were blown up, spiritually speaking. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul described the time uh, at one of his trials when he said, no one stood with me. He was absolutely alone as he was beset by the enemies of the gospel. We could go on and on just in the life of the Apostle Paul, but I think you get the idea. You will want to quit. You'll want to quit serving the Lord for sure. You might want to quit even walking with the Lord. Don't do it. When the enemy blocks and besets and besieges you, the only reasonable strategy is to endure. Because after all, you're walking with the Lord of all the earth and his truth, which must come to pass exactly as he said it would. And so take a lesson from Jeremiah. Jeremiah was given a message and the people mocked him. They said, that's never going to happen. And they persecuted him and wanted to kill him and he was alone and beset and besieged. But we know from history and from knowing our God, it was the right message. It was a correct message. It was the truth. It had to come to pass. And so he endured. And we see that endurance. As far as I li- our lives are, are, are you know, in, in being besieged or beset or whatever, you remember siege warfare, it has to do with who can outlast the other person or, or you know, the enemy. So let's say you're besieged. Let's say it lasts your entire life. You are definitely going to be able to outlast your enemy. For one thing, you have an unlimited supply of all that you need, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. You have the bread of life, the word of God, the son of God. You have living water that the Lord wants to pour into you and through you. The great enemy of the human race The last great enemy is death. And yet Paul the Apostle tells us that we mock death as Christians. Where is his victory? Where is the sting of death if you're a Christian? Because to be absent from the body is what? It's to be present with the Lord. You you can't have a victory over a person like that. You're the kind of person that can say, well, uh, God's gonna deliver me from this situation, but if he doesn't and you kill me, That's all right too. In fact, that might be better because then I'll be with the Lord. And so we have an unlimited supply, an unlimited resource. There's no strategy of the devil or the enemy or the world that can outlast us if we will just set our hearts towards serving the Lord and keep our minds and affections on things above and endure to the end. Learn from Jeremiah that God is worthy of you enduring to the end. And notice I never said you wouldn't be beset or that you wouldn't be besieged or that it was going to be easy. No, it might be the most difficult thing you can imagine. And it might last your entire life, but you're still walking with the Lord in his truth and you know how it's all going to end. It's going to end with you standing before the Lord at his bema, at his judgment seat, and him looking at you with those beautiful eyes saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Now the rest of the verses, verses three through 14, they're about being besieged as a discipline and we'll see that the only possible response is to surrender. 
Almost 200 years earlier, the Assyrian armies of Sennacherib had surrounded Jerusalem. King Hezekiah consulted then the prophet Isaiah. Hezekiah prayed. The next morning, he awoke to, found, uh, to find that 185,000 Assyrian troops did not awaken. The angel of the Lord had been dispatched from heaven to kill them as they slept overnight. The rest of the Assyrians withdrew. Jerusalem was miraculously preserved. That's essentially what Zedekiah was thinking would happen again when he consulted Jeremiah. Because all along we've seen in our text, uh, in our previous studies, the Jews figured God would never allow his city and his temple to fall. They thought they had an ace in the hole because God loved Jerusalem and his presence dwelt in the temple. And so they figured if we are besieged, God will dispatch an angel and he'll easily take care of that situation. Well, they had quite a surprise in store in verse three. Then Jeremiah said to them, thus you shall say to Zedekiah, thus says the Lord God of Israel, behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands with which you fight against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who besiege you outside the walls. And I will assemble them in the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and fury and great wrath. I will strike the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. And afterwards, says the Lord, I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, his servants and the people and such as are left in this city from the pestilence and the sword and the famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. And he shall strike them with the edge of the sword. He shall not spare them or have pity or mercy. Now they were gonna be overcome by the siege because it was God himself who was fighting against them. He was fighting against them in the sense that he was the one who had brought the invaders as a discipline for their idolatries and for their refusal to repent. And so they thought they were fighting the Babylonians and that God would fight for them. God said, no, you don't understand. You're fighting me and they are fighting for me against you. The difference in Hezekiah's day was that he had led the people in real spiritual reform. He was a godly king. He destroyed foreign altars and idols. The Jews in Zedekiah's time were steeped in idolatry, most wicked idolatry, and they rudely refused to repent. It's interesting thinking about this, thinking about Zedekiah and the leaders of Jerusalem and, you know, they were, in a sense, uh, you know, part of what they were doing, we all sometimes do, they were surveying the Bible or at least thinking back in their history and thinking, well, is there a time like this that we can look at and kind of get an idea of what God might do? And so they were looking at the, the invasion of the Assyrians, the besieging of Jerusalem, and they were seeing what God done. Uh, had done, but the stories we have in the Bible, they're not so much about God's works as they are about God's ways. Back in the Old Testament, there's a psalm where uh, the, uh, the psalmist says that the children of Israel, back in the time of the Exodus, he says they knew God's works, but Moses knew God's ways. 
Uh, and you can see the works of God, the miracles of God, you know, all of these things, and not really know God. But Moses knew the ways of God. He knew the heart of God. And that's the problem that the Jews had in, Jew, in Zedekiah's time. He was looking for God's works. He was thinking that God would repeat his works. When Jerusalem is surrounded, God sends an angel and he kills everybody. That's the way it works. And Jeremiah was on hand to say, no, God could do that, but you don't understand the ways of God. You don't understand the heart of God. There's a big difference between you and Hezekiah. There's a big difference between what happened then and what's happening now, and that difference is sin. And you've refused to repent. And the ways of God demand that he discipline his children. Now, this is a discipline situation, not a deliverance. Now, a lot of times people say, well, is God going to deliver me or discipline me? Well, it depends on whether you're in sin or not. That's what it depends upon. And so they were misreading the Bible. They were hoping that God would act mechanically. Jerusalem's in trouble. I killed the invaders. God said, no, I want to act mercifully and get you out of your sin. And since you won't repent of it, I'm going to have to discipline you and work it out that way. So you are therefore watching as God, who had given fair warning, was disciplining his people. So the question is, what should they do? If you understood that God was disciplining you using the Babylonian army, what was your proper response? Well, in verse eight, now you shall say to this people, thus says the Lord, behold, I have set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who remains in the city shall die by the sword, by famine and pestilence. He who goes out and defects to the Chaldeans who besiege you, he shall live, and his life shall be as a prize to him. For I have set my face against this city for adversity, and not for good, says the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. The term Chaldeans seems sometimes to be used to refer to Babylon after they had defeated the Assyrians and grew to a world-dominating empire. Uh, Babylon had been around for a long, long time. They weren't always... Uh, on top of the world, as it were. But after they defeated the Assyrians and became the world-dominating empire, you see them referred to as the Chaldeans many times. Now, Jeremiah told them to surrender, and he did so using an illustration that we initially miss, but that they would immediately understand. He said, he who goes out and defects, he shall live and his life shall be a prize to him. When soldiers came back from battle, they brought back with them the prizes or the spoils of their victory. You, if you've seen movies or television shows about these ancient times and you know, they fling open the gates of the city and the warriors come back and there's a big parade and ticker tape and they're carrying behind them gold and jewels and animals and slaves and, and they're declaring in that parade that we were victorious and these are our prizes. If, on the other hand, when you flung open the gates, all there were were a few straggly soldiers, they would say, our lives are the prize. In other words, we, we escaped with our life and we were lucky to do that. And so what Jeremiah is saying is, not that you, uh, I'm a traitor and you need to commit treason and go over to the enemy. He's saying, no, this battle is over before it's even fought. As an army, you've already lost because you're fighting against God and the only prize you can hope to have is your life. And if you will go along with God's plan and surrender and defect to the Babylonians, you won't be killed. 
but if you stay in the city and think that you can win this battle, uh, you've got another thing coming. You're going to die. Commentators get sidetracked here talking about patriotism and whether Jeremiah was a traitor or committing treason. Of course he wasn't. Reminds me of that really stirring scene in the movie Chariots of Fire. How many of you have seen Chariots of Fire? Raise your hand. You should see it every year. It's a great film. Eric Little, the main character, solid Christian. He's going to end up a missionary to China uh, really fast. And he's going to run for England in the Olympics. Uh, he gets over to, uh, you know, to the Olympics and he finds out that his race is going to be on Sunday. Well, that was a problem for him because he believed that Sunday was the new Christian Sabbath. You didn't do any work, you couldn't run, you know, it was just a day of rest. And so he let the authorities, uh, you know, his Olympic committee know that he couldn't run on Sunday. He was bowing out of his race. And initially they went along with it, but then there's a scene, there's kind of a, a party going on, and he gets invited to go see all of these bigwigs from the English government, barons and dukes and people of power. And he, he thinks it's all really friendly, and it was at first, but it's really a power play to get him to change his mind and to run on Sunday for king and country, to put... Uh, his king and his country ahead of his religious beliefs. And it's, it's really a very powerful scene. I love that scene. It makes the whole movie for me. And at one point, as they're putting this pressure on him, and it's very, very tense and, and stressful, he says, God made countries. God makes kings and the rules by which they govern. And those rules say that the Sabbath is his, and I, for one, intend to keep it that way. And he just absolutely stares them down because he had to obey God rather than men. And that's what Jeremiah was doing and that's what he was telling the people to do. He says, this is over. Don't you understand? This is done. You refuse to repent. The Babylonians are coming. They're going to burn the city. They're going to burn the temple. The only hope for you as an individual is to defect because we're a defeated army. And so the truly patriotic thing for the Jews to do would have been to unconditionally surrender. They'd be surrendering, not to the Babylonians, but to God who was using the Babylonians. This was a case in which God was besieging them as a discipline. They had refused to repent of their sin. Worse, they assumed God must deliver them from destruction in order to preserve his name and his glory. If you think about it, they were spiritually blackmailing God. They were doing whatever their own immoral, idolatrous heart told them to do, all the while thinking they had God right where they wanted him because certainly he would protect them because they were inside the city walls of his city surrounding his temple. Now, Christians still do this today. They blackmail God in a way, or at least they think they can. They know exactly what God's word says but they defy it. They go their own way according to their own desires. And, and there's a variety of different reasons they might give if they even bother to give a reason. A lot of times, and people will say this, they say, well, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but God is a gracious God and God will forgive me. He'll absolutely forgive me. Paul the Apostle in the New Testament a couple of times People would say something like, should we sin that grace might abound? And he said, God forbid that you would even think that way. 
that you would just go ahead and sin knowing that God is gracious anyway and he'll forgive you. But a lot of Christians, they have that attitude. They, they make some decisions. They say, I'm gonna go this direction. I'm gonna do, I know that what I'm doing is wrong or I, I see that it's wrong from what I read in the word of God, but I'm gonna do it anyway. And when I'm done doing it or when I get to where I wanna be doing it, then I'll repent and everything will be hunky-dory, which is a Greek word meaning hunky-dory. First service, I used that, and I said, what does that mean? And people looked it up, and they've been texting me all. It doesn't mean anything. It just, it's an American idiom that means okay. So anyway, hunky-dory. That's our word of the week. Uh, anyway, so, uh, and, and, you know, others, they, 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 just, they, they just figure that God won't do anything to them. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I brought up the situation of people always wanting to be happy. Do you, do you know, you've heard that. God wants me to be happy as if it's in the Bible, first Fleshalonians, you know. <laughs> Man, that's the oldest one ever. I mean, maybe I need to reach back to the Jesus freak days. But anyway, so, so people say, well, I know that God wants me to be happy. And by that they mean I have canceled out all the commandments of God, all the precepts of God, everything that God has said about these certain things, I can cancel out because in doing them, I'm not happy, but in not doing them and defying them, I am happy. And once I get through all of this to where I think I'm totally happy, then I'll be happy to do those again. But in the meantime, I'm just gonna do what I wanna do. I'm gonna be happy. And all the time, there's a suspicion in the back of their minds that nothing's gonna happen to them, that everything's gonna be just fine. Now, I don't know when and I don't know how but God will eventually discipline you. Uh, every, it's different with each person, but I know that as a loving father, he won't ignore disciplining you for your own good. God disciplines his children. He did it then. He does it now. If you are pursuing sin, thinking God will defend and deliver you because he'll be embarrassed if you fall, watch out. He's more likely to discipline you openly. God got to the point where he said, I'll let Jerusalem burn. I don't need a temple. In fact, there's a sad passage in the book of Ezekiel where his glory leaves the temple. He says, I'm out of, I'm out of here. It's all gonna fall, it's all gonna burn. I'm leaving uh, prior to it. It's, it's really sad. When God does discipline you, the truly spiritual thing to do, the only reasonable thing is to unconditionally surrender to him. Endure his discipline because he's your father who loves you. But before you ever get to that, why not repent? God always gives you space to repent. Get back on track with the Lord. Now, I know you guys are sincere Christians and, and, and a sincere Christian hears something like this and they think, and all the time you think, God, are you disciplining me? Uh, you know, something maybe happened to you this week or you, know, you got sick or you have an illness or you know, something happened that's unusual and you think, oh, is this a discipline from the Lord? And we worry about that. You shouldn't worry or wonder if God is disciplining you. What you should simply do is bring your heart before the Lord all the time. And just say, Lord, search my heart. Look at my ways. See if there be any wicked way in me maybe that I don't even know about. That I haven't really even put my finger on. And then let you and I deal with that. And then you don't, have to, you don't have to worry, you know, am I harboring something? You know, is God gonna discipline you? Just have an open relationship with God and keep yourself adjusted. Maybe you are in sin. Maybe you have been pursuing sin 
and you know that God is disciplining you, same difference, just bring your heart before the Lord and repent of it. Turn from it and let the Lord restore you. Now, this chapter ends, hopefully, in verse 11. It says, and concerning the house of the king of Judah, say, hear the word of the Lord, O house of David. Thus says the Lord, execute judgment in the morning. Deliver him who is plundered out of the hand of the oppressor, lest my fury go forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Behold, I am against you, O inhabitant of the valley and rock of the plain, says the Lord, who say, who shall come down against us or who shall enter our dwellings? I will punish you according to the fruit of your doings, says the Lord. I will kindle a fire in the forest and it shall devour all things around it. Why exhort the house of David to obedience, seeing that the nation was definitely going to fall in 18 months and spend 70 years in captivity where there would be no king on the throne? Well, it's a promise that God was going to restore them to their land and to their city and to their temple and to himself. And when he did, they should return to walking in ways that were befitting of the kings and the citizens of their great God and Savior, and thereby avoid future discipline. And so really there's a a promise packed into this. You're going, it's over, you've lost, I'm against you, the fire is coming, the discipline is coming, the captivity is coming, but beyond that, there will be kings again, there will be a city again, there will be a temple again, and just return to the normal walk uh, that you ought to have with me so that I don't have to discipline you again and again and again. And so as I said, rather than wonder if God is disciplining you, just repent. If you know that he is, surrender yourself to him and watch him restore you. Meantime, remember that you are going to be blocked, you're going to be beset, you're going to be besieged as you walk with the Lord and seek to serve him. It goes with the territory of being a disciple. It's, it's just part of the definition of what it means to be a disciple. Uh, obviously, the Bible says if God be for us, who can be against us? It doesn't mean no one is against us. It means they cannot prevail. Because when Paul says that, then he lists a whole bunch of things that are against you principalities and powers and things on the earth and things under the earth and all of these adversities that come against you as a Christian. But who can be against you if God is for you? No one, because you have the ultimate victory. You know the end before the beginning. The worst thing that could happen to you is the best thing that could happen to you. You would die and you'd be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said this about endurance He said, endurance should be the great care of every Christian, his daily and nightly care. Beloved, I conjure you by the love of God and by the love of your own souls, be faithful unto death. Have you difficulties? You must conquer them. But you cannot persevere except by much watchfulness in the closet, much carefulness over every action, much dependence upon the strong hand of the Holy Spirit who alone can make you stand. Walk and live as in the sight of God, Knowing where your great strength lieth and depend upon it, you shall yet sing that sweet doxology uh, doxology in Jude. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Endure to the end.
You can endure because you know the end and you have all the help you need to get there in the person of Jesus Christ by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and by the inspired word of God. Let's pray.